Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Robcast. This is episode 201, and this episode is called A Brief Guide to the Undernet, Part 3, I Was Alive in the 1900s. Now, uh, this is the third episode I've done on the Undernet, but this one actually has a title beyond just Part 1, Part 2, Part 3. And actually, this, this, uh, this line, I Was Alive in the 1900s, this is a classic example. That line makes me laugh really hard, and I came up with it in, I was working on the show I did at Largo a couple weeks ago, and I was doing this whole thing about something that happened to me in the late 90s, which was the 1900s, and I was like, oh, that's a pretty good, that's funny. Um, but you don't know if other people think it's funny. Um, and there was a larger thing I was doing with this idea of I was alive in the 1900s, but it's a classic example where you have something that you think is funny, so... You, uh, I was like, well, then I'm just going to say it um, on stage with a microphone, and we'll see where it goes. And it was so interesting how hard people laugh at this line back in the 1900s when I was alive. Um, that's just a classic example where you never, you, have, you, you just don't know what's going to connect or not. And it's also interesting because this idea um, sort of formed the basis of another uh episode on the internet, because you didn't think we'd stop it too, did you? <laughs> so in this episode, I want to talk about time, space, fidelity, Spotify, the insanity of Instagram, the spiritual power of distinguishing. We'll do a bit of architectural theory, and I want to talk about my grandfather, Malcolm. So that's uh, a bit of the territory that we're headed into. Before we do that, um, we just put up new tickets for the fall leg of the Holy Shift Tour. Um, actually, tickets, we also put up tickets for Brazil. So I'm going to Brazil for the first time, Holy Shift Tour in Brazil. And then starting end of August, we'll start fall leg of U.S. Tour. So that will be, we'll start with Grand Rapids, Detroit, Toronto, and then... Uh, we're going to Ohio, Columbus, Cleveland, Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania, and then a number of other cities, um, Denver, Atlanta, Nashville, and the tour will end December 1st and at the Ace Hotel in Los Angeles. Um, I'm leaving in a couple of weeks, well, actually less than a couple of weeks, for the UK, for the UK and Ireland tour. Um, England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and we're starting July 2nd in London. And all you UK and Ireland friends, there are some tickets left for some of the cities, and you can get all those at greenbelt.org. So that's all coming, more touring. And then secondly, last week, uh, we released the first part of my new uh, commentary on the book of Leviticus, because everybody's doing commentaries on the book of Leviticus, like you know. Um, this one, mine is called Blood, Guts, that's a joke, by the way. Um, mine is called Blood, Guts, and Fire, the Gospel According to Leviticus. And it's uh, the first part covers the first seven chapters, so I take you just chapter by chapter. It's three hours long, and uh, when you see what's actually in Leviticus, I know Leviticus for many people is a punching bag about the Bible. It's like, all the things that are wrong with the Bible in one book, and all the reasons to discard the Bible, which is fascinating whenever I hear people slag the book of Leviticus, because it's like, oh, my word. Seriously, the widespread ignorance. Uh, I would argue about the Bible, but about Leviticus. It's about justice. It's about compassion. 
of course there are some primitive barbaric parts of Le Leviticus. It's like thousands and thousands of years old. That's how people saw the world. And yet, within this book, um, love your neighbor comes from Leviticus. How to make peace, how to live with intention. It's It's got so much, and there are all these interesting word patterns. I could go, well, I was going to say I could go on and on, but I do in the commentary. That you can get as well at my site. So there's a few, a few new things. Now, let us, my friends, jump into part three of the undernet. Now, first off, a bit of review. I use this word undernet to describe the underbelly of the internet, that any new technology brings with it health and unhealth. Any new technology expands human capacity, but when that capacity is pushed too hard, then it collapses in on itself. So obviously, a car can get you someplace faster, but too many cars and you get traffic, at which point you can walk there faster. So whenever you're looking at a technology, the question, is it good or bad, is irrelevant. That's not the question. The question is, how is this technology being used? And then because, you know, for me, all of my work is about everything is spiritual. So for me, the question is, how is the internet, and specifically in this series, how is the internet in its unhealth shaping us and forming us at the deepest spiritual levels? So if at any point, usual disclaimer I give on the internet episodes, if at any point you're like, yeah, but there's also a bunch of good things on the internet, obviously, anybody can see that. I'm talking to you in a microphone that somehow gets beamed around the world. So I'm not fuzzy on that. This is not an episode on all the good of the internet. This is sort of poking and probing the underbelly and what it might be doing to us in its shadows and how we can be more uh, awake, more discerning, more sharp in our perception of how this new thing called the interweb might actually be working on us in ways that we need to resist. So, first off, we'll talk about time, then fidelity, then the power of distinguishing, then space, and at the end, uh, we'll actually come back to time and space and how they're related to the undernet. So, let's begin with Spotify. There's all sorts of billboards right on the street outside of our house that... Um, this, and it's a Los Angeles thing as well. And I remember when I used to visit Los Angeles, I was struck with all the billboards advertising television shows, movies, um, plays, uh, music, um, art installations. It just never stops. And it's kind of awesome because literally on any given day, driving my daughter to school, I'd be like, oh, look, that, that, that new show is out. Oh, look, so-and-so has a movie. Oh, look. And the other day, uh, last week actually, I saw that a band that I really like had a new album out. So I go to Spotify to listen to their new album. And Spotify, by the way, being amazing because you see it and then you just go on your phone and it's there. <coughs> Excuse me. So I hit play on the first song of the album. And this is a band I like. And I'm listening and it's, I don't know, 20 seconds in, 30 seconds in, 40 seconds in. And I had this voice like race to the front of my brain and it said something along the lines of, come on, get to the chorus. <laughs> come on, get to the chorus. And 
I was so like, whoa, what has happened to me that I'm, I actually like this band and there is some deep-seated impatience that wells up within me like, come on, get to the, you're taking too long. How many of you have been, uh, somebody emails you a video clip. Remember somebody emailed you a video clip 10 years ago and they were like, check it out. It's only 17 minutes long. And you're like, oh wow, maybe I will check it out. Now somebody sends you a clip and they're like, check it out. It's only 11 minutes. You're like, like I'm going to watch it. How many of you, you, you get a clip emailed to you and the first thing you do is you check the time code. You check it to see how much time do I have to give to this? And unless there are extenuating circumstances, unless you have some personal already vested interest in this, what is it? What's the number for you? Two minutes, three minutes, five minutes? No way am I listening to that. A guy was just telling me recently, uh, an expert in these sort of things, that the whole thing on Instagram with video is you have three seconds. You have three seconds before people move to the next thing. And the thing about Spotify is, if I hit play and this thing doesn't grab me, I know that there are thousands and thousands and thousands and millions of other songs. So I want to go back to that like instantaneous reflex, that come on, get to the chorus. Come on, Come on, give me the hit now. I don't want to sit here and wait for this thing to kick in. Let's go. And my question is simply, how is this shaping us and our conceptions of time and how we think about how things are supposed to move and engage us? I tell you that because my grandpa Malcolm died at the age of 95. He was actually my great-grandfather, my grandmother Eileen's dad. He died in 1982 at the age of 95. I was born in 1970, so there was 12 years there where Malcolm, I have 12 years of, of early, early memories of Grandpa Malcolm, and he lived in a trailer park off of Grand River Avenue um, on the way out of Okemos into, Lan into Williamston, Michigan. You know what I'm talking about, some of you? The Mitten. And uh, Malcolm was an inventor, interestingly enough. So he, he invented these board games, and I would grow up playing these games. Like there was like this square hexagonal board, and then up in the middle was a spring that had like a little half plastic clear dome, and there was a piece of, there was a dice in there. So you'd pull it back and then let it go, and it would like, and then eventually the dice would, it was like a new way of rolling the dice. <laughs> That's the kind of thing he did. He also, I distinctly remember there were newspaper articles because he didn't like the experience of a tandem bicycle. And so what he did is he took, because one person has to just stare at the back of the other person. So he invented a tandem bicycle where the people ride side by side and essentially welded together two bikes. One of the person's steering affected the other wheel. And then you could ride down the street together having a conversation back and forth. This is what I remember about Malcolm. By the way, if I ever, at some point, you know, the other side, however it works, um, if I ever run into Grandpa Malcolm, which would be fantastic, Mac, I can only imagine him being like, you seriously mentioned me in a Robcast? <laughs> and 
the thing I'm known for is a board game and a bike. Seriously, 95 years on planet Earth. And that's what I'm going to be remembered by with your people. <laughs> or maybe he'll be like, dude, nice, the bike. That I was going, I was the moonshot and it worked. It lived beyond me. <laughs> now, Malcolm was born in the 1800s. So me, Rob Bell, I, for a period of life there, spent time and knew and had a relationship with somebody who was born in the 1800s. I was born in the 1900s. I was alive in the 1900s. Grandpa Malcolm and I overlapped in the 1900s. And now it's the 2000s, and you and I are here. But I have a daughter who's nine. She was born in 2009. And if she lives to the age that Grandpa Malcolm lived to, that would put her into the, what are you, 2100s? The 22nd century? So from Grandfather Malcolm to me to my daughter, our lives span or touch on four centuries, 1800s, 1900s, 2000. 2100s. Now, what did we just do there? All we did there was fly slightly higher when it comes to our perception of time. And all I did was link you to two relationships, one earlier in my life and one current and ongoing. And in just linking me relationally with loves of mine, people I've loved and love, we just spanned four centuries of human history, which is a very different perception of time than 34 seconds into the first song on the album, something within you going, come on, get to the chorus, or your friend emailing you that video clip going, dude, you've got to see this, and you hit play, and it's at the 11 second mark, and you're like, I'm already bored, come on, what's the problem, what's the problem? You're already close to clicking stop, and just like, no, forget it, forget it, I don't have time for this. So the question becomes, because there are these multiple ways of perceiving time. To what degree is the internet shaping our perception of time and our patience within those perceptions? Now, there's this story that I love from the book of Genesis about a man named Abraham, and he's had this whole treaty and an oath, and there's been a breakdown with another guy, and then they have like a sort of, uh, they make amends, etc., but then what we're told in Genesis is that, is that Abraham planted a tamarisk tree. <laughs> and that's it. He planted a tamarisk tree. Now, there's all sorts of speculation about the sim symbolism involved in a tamarisk tree. What we do know is a tamarisk tree would have taken a while to grow. So when the line says Abraham planted a tamarisk tree, that would have had symbolic power, but that would have been something that would have taken a while to grow. The beneficiaries of that tree would have been the generations who came after him. A, sh a tree, especially at that time, a tree was one of the primary ways people found shade. 
But Abraham isn't planting a tree and then getting shade from that tree later that day or that week or next year. That's going to take a while. So what's interesting is built into the story is Abraham did something that extended generationally beyond his location in time and space. Now, you and I are confined to this moment. We don't have options. We, we don't have portals and time travel, even though these are extraordinary fantasies that we have entertained, especially in art, for a number of years. You and I are right here and now. So our, well, our joy, our wisdom, our perspective on things toggles back and forth between right where we are here and now and the pressing matters of this moment and our ability to stand outside of this moment and see this moment within a larger perspective. So you are, uh, well, you're stuck in traffic, and right there and then in that moment, you're just steaming because you're stuck in traffic. But then, that's a classic moment when you toggle from that moment to, it's just traffic. I've been in traffic before. I'll get there. If I'm late, I've been late places before. Not a big deal. And so what the psyche needs is it needs this toggling back and forth in terms of our perception of time between a larger altitude view of time and being right here, right now. And you lose either one, and you lose the ability to navigate life with some vitality and joy. Now, let's add that to this, or let's add this to that. Everything that matters in life takes time. Your character, your substance, your generosity, becoming somebody who's learning how to forgive people well, um, learning how to still your mind, learning how to calm that monkey mind, learning how to live without worry, uh, learning to float down the river, learning how to give yourself fully to things and yet also hold them loosely. Everything that you want to become as a person, the person that you desire to become, all of those skills, qualities, values, all of that, all of that muscle buildup, all of that is going to take time. This takes a while. And for many people, modern images of the machine, pull a lever, push a button, their assumption is that sort of leaked over into understandings of the soul. So why can't I just push a button and pull a lever and do the seven steps and be there? Why is this taking so long? And yet, if you look in the, all the ancient traditions, obviously they were pre-machinery, but the images were generally agricultural in nature. Plant a seed, and then you wait for it to grow. The seasons leave, and then they come back around after you've passed through the other seasons. And so for thousands of years, when people talk about soul and spirit, they simply understood that the shaping of each of us, it takes a while. It's not, come on, get to the chorus. And the reason why I say that, two things. Number one, how often 
do you beat yourself up over some attribute, value, ability that you haven't mastered, perfected, whatever language you have in your head? Uh, How often do you fail to extend yourself grace under the assumption that you should have nailed this by now? And yet, the story of history, the story of all the wise ones, the story of all the gurus and monks and sages and mystics, everybody he seemed to have tasted of more, it's always a story of a couple steps forward, a step back. It's always a story of struggle. It's always a story of getting a glimpse of what you could be, what your life could be, and then you head off in that direction and there are setbacks and you have dark nights of the soul and you wander around in the woods and you get lost and friends become enemies and then because of friends, that's how it works. It takes a while. And so the question in regards to the undernet is, in what way is this extraordinary machinery of the internet that makes so many things instantly available to us? In what way is it leaking over into other areas of life, spilling over into the territory of the heart and the soul and spirit, and making us just as impatient with our own path as we are with this YouTube clip that is failing to load fast enough? Now, secondly, let's talk about that toggling back and forth between this exact moment and a larger view of history, Uh, because I was alive in the 1900s, and we should speak, speak specifically of the president. How many people do you know who have been on a roller coaster ride of anxiety, despair, cynicism, frustration, worry, and tension over the past... I was going to say year and a half, but let's go two years, two and a half years since the election first started. Um, How many people do you know have lost their minds on Facebook about the latest presidential tweet? Um, Yeah, yeah. Well, you see how people survived difficult times and complete madness of political leaders. Uh, You see how people survived this over the years is the toggling back and forth between this moment and the pressing needs of this moment, and a higher view, an 18th century, 19th century, 20th century, 21st century view of history. This current president won't be president forever. <laughs> breaking, <laughs> breaking news. They have something called term limits. Uh, breaking news. This moment in history is simply a moment, and it will pass like all other moments. So there is the lie, the injustice, the insanity of this moment, which we pay attention to and we rally and march against, but then there is also the stepping back and remembering, ah, yes, but this, but but first off, other people have been through these sorts of circumstances. In fact, millions and millions of people over human history have been in situations far more oppressive far more corrupt, uh, where their very lives were hanging in the balance. And that comes from a larger, longer view of history. 
And I would simply argue that the one of the undersides of the internet is it has made so much available to us so quickly and instantly. Oh, look, there's a billboard for a band I like. I can pull that up on my phone right now if I want. It has made so much available right here, right now, in 3G, 5G, LTE, whatever it is now, but often at the expense of a longer, higher, wider view of time and history that remembers this right here is part of an, uh, is temporal. It's temporary. It's passing. It's only four years, or dear God, eight. <laughs> and then there will be somebody else. And the undernet does not lean towards a long view of history. And the reason why is because billions and billions and billions of dollars are being spent, probably today, at least this week, to grab your eyeballs and my eyeballs and get us to click right now on that link or that advertisement or that promotion or that push notification. A massive, massive billion-dollar industry is hard at work right now trying to figure out how to get you and I to do something right now. And this is shaping us. And so the power of history, the power of planting a tamarisk tree, the power of seeing time from both the right here, right now, and what needs to be done right here now, and toggling between that and 1800s, 1900s, 2000, 2100s, is it's like it eases that burden on the soul because it says this moment is happening in a much larger continuum of time. And that can bring you much relief, both when you look around you, like perhaps politically, and then in your own life, you are on a trajectory, an arc, you are headed somewhere, and there are going to be some steps backwards here and there because it's two, three, four steps forward, one step back, three steps back, two steps back, nine steps back. That's how the whole thing moves forward, but that's how our lives move forward. So for every one of you who you're constantly find yourself beating yourself up, essentially you're saying to yourself, get to the chorus. Why can't I just get this nailed? It takes a while. It takes a while. It takes a while. Now, let's take this and let's uh, talk just a moment about fidelity, because the thing about Spotify, which is so awesome, is that on Spotify, I have all of this music. What, millions? How many millions of songs? And I can just fly around with my thumb and listen here, listen there, listen here, listen there, listen to that deep cut, listen to that live one, listen to that remix, listen to that collab. I can so-and-so guessed it on so-and-so song. Whoa, so-and-so has an album they put out under a different name. I can fly around and if I don't like whatever it is, I can simply forward to the next song. I can go to a different playlist. I can hit stop, back, and go search and listen to something else. I always have that option. By the way, remember vinyl? We have a record player in our kitchen. Remember a record player? You put the record on, and then, like for me, I start cooking, or you sit down on the couch, and if it doesn't, 
instantly grab you, you would then have to get up off of the couch and walk over to the record player. And it's kind of hard to move the needle among songs. So when you put the needle down on a record, that generally means 20, 25 minutes. You're committed. Generally, obviously you can hit stop, but as a general rule for vinyl, it's a very different experience. You don't instantly have that ability with your thumb. You have to get up and go over there. By the way, vinyl sales are skyrocketing. Uh, Rolling Stone just did a piece this week. Vinyl, it's all streaming now, and then record sales, like actual pressed vinyl sales are increasing massively. Doesn't that tell you something? Something within us wants... It's almost like with all these options, what vinyl says is, I know you have all these options, but right now you're going to do this. It's like we're waiting for somebody to go, here, for 20 minutes, this is what you're going to listen to. Now, the reason why I bring all this up is greatness, character, excellence, wisdom, require the giving of yourself to people, places, things, ideas, to a course, to a path, to a trajectory, that the way that we actually move forward and become the kinds of people we intend to become is by committing ourselves to certain things and people, and a commitment, a yes, always involves a no. There are all of these there are all of these people in the world you could give yourself to. But then you choose yes to give yourself to this person, to this group of people, to this cause, to this team, to this family, and that has within it a no. So all movements forward into greater and greater fidelity involve a death to all those other options, which is why whenever you hear the great ones, the great athletes, the great artists, the great they, uh, the people, the great activists, the great business leaders, they uh, they said no to all the other things they could have given themselves to in order to say yes to this, and that is at the heart of fidelity. Like you think about a, a relationship, you give yourself to this person, and then you keep giving yourself to this person. And of all the seven plus billion people on planet, you have decided to give yourself to this person. And that impulse, that understanding of dying to all these other options in order to give yourself to whatever your this is, that is a very different posture of the heart than, well, if I'm bored with that song, I just move to the next song. Now, I love, let this be an advertisement for Spotify. I love the idea that there is all this great music. Love it. But the question is, in what ways has that, which is wonderful, seeped into other areas of life? And, and I would argue with the, the, the resurgence of vinyl, of an actual record, speaks to a larger fidelity that we know is how the whole thing works. 
it doesn't work. We don't move forward because we just endlessly have millions of options. We move forward because within all of that, we said yes, and you can only really handle a few things. We said yes to a few things, to this person, to those people, to that cause, to that task, to that art form, to that business, to that group of people who needed somebody to stand up for them, to that group of people who needed somebody to rescue them, to that. We gave ourselves to the one, to the few, and that's fidelity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and when you step into the internet, sometimes you're stepping into the opposite of that. You can go over here, you can go over there, you can go over there. Now, this brings me to the distinguishing power of selecting this versus that. I got a new phone recently, um, partly because I dropped mine so many times. When you're going back, there's a place right down the street in the neighborhood that repairs, you know, they like put a new cover on your iPhone. Um, when you're going back like for the third or fourth time, <laughs> <laughs> my phone, it was like, man, uh, this phone, this phone is as it's seen its day. So I went and got a new phone. And then once again, seriously, technically challenged this man talking to you right now. So then I had to go back through, you know, like when you get a new phone, then you go back through and you have to put all the things back on your phone that weren't on your phone, like surf report, you got to download the surf uh, app again. And so you can check waves each morning, et cetera, et cetera. I put back on um, this app called Instagram. Are you familiar with the Instagram, kids? Um, and I put things, like when there's um, new things that I'm doing, I put them on Instagram so people could know what we're up to in case they want to take part. And so I put Instagram on, but then when I put Instagram on, it asked me a whole near, it has like a setup thing where it's asking me a whole set of questions, which... Uh, Literally, the only other time I put Instagram on my phone was, what, four years ago, and somebody did it for me once again, challenged in this area. So uh, I'm going through clicking all of these things, and I see, and, and up comes the latest post I'd done, and it asks me, uh, do you want this, do you want that, etc.? And I notice that there are comments on the post I'd done, and I notice that the first comment is a comment that somebody made just pure, raw, unadulterated ignorance. <laughs> just like, why? Okay, somebody thought that, but not only somebody thought that, somebody thought to publicly broadcast that on a global communication platform. <laughs> just unbelievable. Like, not only would you think that, not only would you verbalize that, but you would feel a need to communicate that. Then I noticed somebody else saw what this person said and uh, corrected them, essentially chided them, shall we say. Like, like what, are you, what are you saying that to him? What, what? What? It was almost like their comment was like, what? Although there's all sorts of other things they said. So I'm putting Instagram, by the way, am I dragging this story out or what? But there's a point here. It took all of the comments on that post and put um, ignorance person com ignorant person's comment first and named it top comments, top comment. And I was like, wait, why is that comment the 
top comment, and then it asked me, do you want comments arranged by the top comment or the newest comment? And I was like, I don't understand what the top comment is, and then it dawned on me. By top comment, what Instagram was referring to is this extraordinarily pure, raw, unadulterated, ignorant comment. But it was the top comment because somebody else commented on it. So Instagram's two categories are new and top, but by top, it simply means what other people commented, a comment that other people commented on. And I realize I'm making this unbelievably complicated, but I'm doing that on purpose. You, You realize how serious this is. Instagram's idea of top happened to be the most ignorant. In this particular situation, ignorance and top were synonymous according to the app. So when we go on the internet, or specifically Instagram, you are entering into a field where the game is algorithmically, if that's a word, rigged towards top, which means one that gathered most attention, which generally means ridiculous, outrageous, or ignorant. And here's the thing. The next day, I think I posted something else. It was like tour dates or something. And I noticed that it kept anything that anybody had commented on somebody's comments, it kept going. And that's when I realized that the, and perhaps I have this wrong, but at least that wasn't the case um, as far as I've experienced. The top comment thing kept becoming the default over the newest. That the app's natural state, when I said, I don't care about the top, just put new so I don't have, so whatever. It kept defaulting to top. And I would argue that that encapsulates why so many of us have great appreciation for the internet, and also when we hear some stupid tweet or some ignorant comment, we go, yeah, it's the internet for you. When we hear about somebody put out a new album and this is what everybody's saying, some politician did this, as everybody's tweeting, and something within you rolls your eyes, it's because it's a system in which its default is not newest, wisest, most in-depth, most insightful, most clever, most truly funny. Its default is top, which means outrageous, ignorant, or ridiculous. No wonder this thing has us all feeling sometimes like we need a shower. Now, let's take this idea of the most actually being the most outrageous And think about the innovation curve. If you look at an innovation curve, it's shaped like a bell. You're welcome. And a bell shape of innovation curve means a few people on the very, very front pick up something. And then a few more people pick up something. And then gradually there's the early adopters. And then there's the late adopter. And then eventually the masses sort of catch on to whatever it is. And then gradually on... The backside, there are sort of the people late to the game. So, for example, when I first started touring the UK 12 years ago, I'd go into a hotel room, and in order to get 
the electricity in the room on, the lights on, you had to take the room key and put it in a slot next to the door. I remember thinking, that's brilliant because then I'm going to take my key with me, obviously, and so no lights are going to be left on in hotel rooms when the person isn't there. Amazing. I had not been at that point in a U.S. hotel room that did that. And then just I've noticed the past couple of years now, when you go in a U.S. hotel room, uh, more and more hotels have that. You put the card in the little slot in order to have electricity go on. So England was essentially years and years and years ahead of America in terms of electricity use in hotels. So classic example of the innovation curve. Some people are just ahead, essentially. But think about it then. The movement or the stickiness or the catching on of whatever the new thing is that eventually everybody is going to catch on. Seatbelts, not smoking on airplanes, whatever it is. Whenever that, at some point, that's going to reach the masses. But when it first hits, only a few people out front see it. And then just a few more see it. So if you look at ranking things and you think, well, that thing over there isn't getting a lot of attention, or that thing over there isn't very popular, or that thing over there isn't getting a lot of hits or followers or comments, it may be because it's insignificant and it's rubbish, but if you look at how the innovation curve works, it may actually be the future. It may actually be a giant step forward in progress, enlightenment, advancement. It may actually be just a little glint of where everybody will be at some point. And so when you look at what ideas are catching fire, when you look at what things are percolating across culture, when you look at what things seem to be connecting, there is very little correspondence between the innovative, radical future that is our best self moving forward and what's currently popular. What we know from the data is that what's currently popular may not be our best. And so when we step into this internet, we have to be very careful that we don't discard, well, that person over there, they don't have a lot of followers. Yeah, it may be because they're 10 years ahead. Yeah, well, you know, no one's streaming that song. It may be because this person has duct taped together a number of different things. They may, their music may actually demand reflection and time and patience. That album may take 10 listens before you realize, oh my word, this is one of the best albums I've ever heard. That book, the first chapter, whew, that first chapter is tough, and yet you push through. And by the way, I'm the first guy to abandon books left and right if they don't grab me in the first chapter. But think how many things that you love that have really done something to you. Your first glimpse of them was not, wow, this is awesome. Your first, your, your first encounter was, this is tough. Uh, just last week, Saturday afternoon, family Saturday afternoon, siesta, everybody's just chilling, and I'm sitting on the couch, and there's a, we have all these coffee table books on the couch, and uh, I took a look at my phone, and I was thinking about all this undernet stuff, and like, <clears throat> there's a world 
of, there's like an infinite world on my phone, right? There's The Ringer, my new favorite site. There's ESPN. There's news. There's all the stuff that you, pictures. There's Pinterest. There's all the stuff that people look at on their phone. There's Netflix, Amazon Prime on the phone. That There's a whole world on the phone. And I had this distinct thought like, oh, there's my phone on the coffee table. It contains an infinite world of things to sit here on the couch and do. And then there's this limited number of books sitting there on the coffee table. Um, and I've been plowing through for the second time this book on Marcel Duchamp, this uh, one of my favorite artists, but uh, this art uh, historian wrote a book called The Apparently Marginal Activities of Marcel Duchamp. And Duchamp is endlessly fascinating to me. And... Uh, a lot of people know him for nude descending a staircase or for the famous toilet that he exhibited, but urinal. But there's this whole thing he did when he claimed that he had retired being an artist. Then he did this whole other thing that's actually so genius. But this one um, art historian has written a book on this other thing he did later in life that I think is just, but it's a technical, theoretical, you know, art historian language. So the book is a slog. But I had this moment like there is a world on my phone or I can pick back up the Duchamp book and keep reading it through the second time um, because the first time I feel like I missed because it's like it's like a hard language for me to get through. But I picked it back up and I swear to you, the number of things that made sense on the second reading. Uh, yeah, there's something there. There's some invitation Um and I'm really struck with the fact that my son's band last year put out cassettes of their first EP. <laughs> a cassette. Remember a cassette? If you put a cassette in, you're committed. Unless you want to fast forward through a cassette, which is just all that sound it makes. Yeah, there's something, there's something about the way that this is working on us where we can just, remember Pixar? Squirrel, squirrel, where we can just, if we don't like it, we can just dart somewhere else. And yet the things that stick, the things that actually shape us, they often come just a few at a time. They often don't announce themselves with great fanfare. They often don't catch fire with the masses because it's the front edge and it takes a while and it takes patience and it takes perseverance and that's actually what shapes you. Okay, one more big idea, space. The distinguishing of this space from this space. Uh, I'm obviously right now I'm deep in this Leviticus world, but in Leviticus there's the tabernacle, and the way that everything is organized in the tabernacle is that the reason why Leviticus is so boring for so many people um, is because it has so many details about do this with this, do this with this, put this here, put this there, and it seems incredibly boring because it is to read it, and then you realize oh the distinguishing of space in Leviticus mirrors. Genesis chapter 1, which is a poem about the distinguishing of space and creation. And then you realize what the Leviticus writer is doing is saying, everything that happens within this temple is a reflection of the larger reordering of the cosmos. Now, why is that interesting? Because these people were slaves, and they've been liberated from slavery. And now the question is, how are they going to reorder the world in a way that doesn't involve them being slaves? So this is the question for each of us. Let's say you went through a dramatic breakup. Let's say you got fired. Let's say you went through a horrific addiction. Let's say you went through some serious depression and struggle and despair. 
and you came out the other side, the question becomes, how are you going to reorder your life in a new way now that you've been liberated? Yes. And it always begins with a distinguishing of this over and against that. This space is for this. This space is for that. And so if you like go into architecture theory, different space is used for different things. And that has a direct reflection on how certain spaces are working on your soul and spirit. So uh, really, really basically, you have public spaces and you have private space. The street out in front of your house or apartment is a public space. Anybody can come up to you. They can talk to you. They can throw things at you. They can ask you for money. They can try to convert you to their religion. When you're in a public space, you are vulnerable in certain ways. You are open in certain ways. You are experiencing and exposed to things you might not ordinarily see. So public space works in a particular way. People can see you. But then you go into your house. You arrive home to your apartment. You close the door behind you, and you are now in private space. And in that private space, this is why you put on sweatpants, people can't see you. You're not on display at some level. There aren't people in the cubicles around you. There aren't students in the desks near you. And in that private space, there is a level at which your psyche can relax because you are not exposed and vulnerable in ways that you are in other spaces. By the way, there's also a third space. You know what the third space is? Like a foyer, a lobby, a stoop, a front hall, uh, a mudroom, though that is uh, entrance way, uh, breezeway, that is architecturally that space that is in between the public space and the private space. So that's why sometimes it's like there's a little awning over the front door. What that space does is it is a third space that helps you transition between the public space and the private space. Yeah, and if you don't have that space, if you just open the front door and you're in the person's private living room, that's not the best feeling, shall we say. If you're sitting there relaxing in private space, and but you know at any point anybody could, or if you have like a giant glass window out on the street and anybody walking by can just look in, then that violates something about the safe, secure nature of private space. So what you'd see architecturally is you'll often see a third space, which is the transition between the two. Yeah, how we doing? Now, by the way, I would argue that this is true for work and rest as well. And that for many people, the car is the third space between working and resting. We'll get to that some other time. But the reason why you need private space is it's like a release valve for the soul. It's that feeling when you come home, you take off your shoes, you close the door, and you fall down into your favorite chair, and you go, nobody's going to ask me to file some TPS reports. Nobody's going to hassle me to give them money, right? There's this feeling of, now, Think about space. Think about your life architecturally. Think about the distinguishing spaces and the ways in which this space is for this, this space is for this. This time is for this, this time is for this. And vitality and health and sustainability comes from a rhythm of life. That's what all the ancient liturgies were about on and off, in and out, engage, disengage, Sabbath, work, rest, play. 
life always comes from a rhythm in which you understand this is not that, and the distinguishing and the separation is what makes your life, it's what makes a good song. Like if the drummer just hits the drums continuously, ah, that's why the drummer hits the, hits the snare and then pulls off, hits the hi-hat and then pulls off. It gives everything a groove. This is why when you don't take your days off, your life loses its groove. It's because you need to be on, to be off. Now, here's the thing about the internet. With the invention of the smartphone, you now have people blurring all of these lines because you can now check your work email from any place and any space at any time. Imagine if you and I go to the beach and uh, we're just putting, we're just, uh, we just waxed our boards. We're just literally zipping up our wetsuits to get in for a good surf. And a guy walks by with his family on vacation and he's carrying a leather briefcase in a swimsuit. You and I would be like, that guy doesn't get it. His kids want to make sandcastles. Look at his family. They're here for a day at the beach, and he's carrying a, le- a Samsonite, let's be more specific, a black Sam- Samsonite polished leather satchel that has all of his work papers in it. We laugh. Like, that guy. that guy's life is a wreck. And yet... How many people bring a smartphone to the beach and they can actually do work emails and phone calls and spreadsheets from their smartphone? So what has happened is this one machine can allow you to Skype from your bedroom. This one machine means you can be traveling to get away and you're at a rest area, and you make a call to find out if the shipment is going to be available and if Sheila from Accounts Receivable can talk to Tom in shipping. You see what's happened is this smartphone, for many people, is obliterating the distinguishing of space because you bring it into certain spaces, and now that space has the potential to perform the tasks that are performed in other space, and it blurs everything. And people didn't used to do mail laying in bed first thing in the morning. And now you can. People didn't used to do conference calls from the foot of their bed. People didn't used to look at the third quarter reports in their bathroom. When people used to go on vacation... They actually got away. (laughs) A friend of mine recently said, when you go off the grid, Rob, you actually go off the grid. (laughs) Yes, of course. That's why it's called going off the grid. If I were endlessly just engaged in the making of things, then that would not be off the grid. That would be just called normal life. Yeah, yeah. It's all a rhythmic back and forth. And so the question to ask is, in which way has the internet and the accessibility that has given you to all spaces in your life caused those spaces to collapse in on one another to the point at which you're having a meal with the people you love and suddenly your phone rings and now you're out on the sidewalk pacing back and forth right back in a world of work, stress, pressure, production efficiency that you left 
47 minutes ago in order to have the sacred time around the table. And this undernet has blurred a number of those things. Whereas previously, you simply would leave the phone in your car, you wouldn't have a portable phone, you would get a uh, message at work the next morning. And I would argue, it is this architectural distinction between spaces and between times, this time is for this, this time is for this, that is at the heart of a sustainable, vital, joyous life. And this little machine has done more to destroy those boundaries and distinctions. And so you have to take back the power over the machine. So when you go into lunch, you leave the phone in your car. You keep the phone somewhere in your house in a particular place in your house, and then you go check it there. Whatever it is for you, you can figure that out. But the psyche needs a break. The psyche needs a release valve. It needs a time when it's not on so that you can be fully alive. That, my friends, is episode three. Wait, yes, episode three of the Undernet. I was alive in the 1900s. And my hope and prayer for you because maybe you were alive in the 1900s as well, <laughs> is that you see this toggle switch between a higher altitude view of history, money, politics, culture, and that you also are present here in the now, responding to things, getting your work done, doing what you're here to do, and that you see this beautiful way that you can move between the two. And that you see how perhaps at times this internet sucks us into being horrified by the latest presidential tweet and losing the perspective that even this will pass because all dominating power structures hold their power loosely and eventually it passes and it's handed to someone else. You see what I'm talking about? There's this view and there's a long view and maturity invites us to move between the two as it's proper. May you figure out how to own the machine in your pocket instead of the machine owning you. May you, my brothers and sisters, see the importance of distinction between spaces. And may you see with great clarity and depth of insight ways in which perhaps the internet has blurred the distinctions and in the process robbed you of the natural rhythms of life. May you take it easy on yourself. This is a long path. You exercise grace. You let yourself off the hook. You give yourself grace and love and forgiveness when you find yourself tripping up because the game that you're playing is a long, long view of time game. And may you come to see that all ways forward will involve a death to all the other options. There is a fidelity at the heart of love excellence, greatness, craft, trade, doing your work in the world. And that we have this new machine that just fire hoses us. There's always another song to sing. There's always another song to play. There's always another TV show to watch. You can just bail on it after 17 seconds. But the real joy in life comes when you don't bail on it after 17 seconds, but you are faithful to it and you follow it and you stick to it and you get all the rewards of that fidelity. And this has been episode three, A Brief Guide to the Internet. I was alive in the 1900s. May grace 
and peace be with you.